Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. On Tuesday, September 23, 1986, the brutally murdered body of 23-year-old Beth Barnard was found on the bedroom floor of her family's farmhouse on Phillip Island. The prime suspect was Vivian Cameron, who had just found out that her husband Fergus was having an affair with Beth. After the murder, Vivian vanished along with the family's land cruiser. The vehicle was located on Tuesday afternoon, but there was no sign of Vivian. However, local woman Glenda Frost received a mysterious phone call from Vivian at 10am that morning to discuss a patchwork gift for a retiring colleague. Glenda has never wavered from this assertion. In episode 7 of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron, we pick up the story on Thursday, September 25, 1986, when the police search and rescue efforts were ramped up. With the brutal murder of Beth Barnard and the vanishing of Vivian Cameron, Sergeant Jeff Frost from the Police Search and Rescue Squad and his divers met at the New Haven boat ramp at 7.30am on Thursday the 25th of September, two days after the Cameron's land cruiser was found near the bridge on the Tuesday. Despite staking out Vivian's brother and sister's places in Melbourne, and making inquiries with bus and taxi companies, there was no sign of Vivian. Searching below the bridge was the next step. While Sergeant Jeff Frost organised his team of divers, other police were searching the mudflats surrounding the bridge and beaches on the island for other evidence that might have washed up. They found nothing. The police air wing was utilised to do an aerial search just in case Vivian's body had washed up on any of the treacherous island coastline. Sharks have always been a feature of Western Port Bay, so that too had to be considered. If Vivian went into the water, a shark attack wasn't out of the question. These police searches were filmed for the nightly TV news. It wouldn't be long, though, before the story disappeared completely from the airwaves. Here's how the dive search worked. There were two small boats in the water, but only one diver from each boat entered the water. The companion diver in the boat connected a long rope to their partner, who then swam out to the centre of the area under the bridge until the rope became taut. The divers swam slowly in arcs along the bottom, keeping the guide ropes taut behind them. They swept the bottom of the bay with their hands ensuring that, though visibility was low, they covered every centimetre. 
Once the arc was completed, the boat crew member pulled their partner in a full body length to begin another arc and the process began again. Once they'd covered the area all the way back to the boat, the boat moved on so the diver could cover the next length. The divers were searching at a depth of around 13 metres of water and visibility was poor. But in spite of this, Sergeant Jeff Frost maintained that if there was a body at the bottom of the bay, his men would have found it. It just wasn't there, he told me several years after the search. We searched every centimetre according to the correct procedure and it just wasn't there. I spoke to a forensic pathologist when I was researching the book. He said there are a number of variables when someone drowns. Water temperature, depth of water in question, and the clothing worn by the person can affect whether a person will sink or float after drowning. However, a body will generally sink to the bottom, but it can also be swept along with a strong current. There have been cases of people drowning in Western Port Bay and never being recovered. When police search and rescue began their search, one that would last for four days, homicide and CIB detectives descended on the home of Marnie and Ian Cairns to take their statements, and perhaps the most important statement of all, that of Fergus Cameron. When Detective Ellen McFadden approached an investigation, he knew it was important to keep an open mind. That was a detective's job. While Vivian Cameron was the prime suspect from the get-go, McFadden cautioned against having tunnel vision in an investigation. At the time I went in, I suppose one thing that she was dead, that she had been murdered by someone. At the time, from when I went in, I suppose one thing, that she was dead, that she had been murdered by someone and obviously wasn't a suicide. I mean, you've got to keep an open mind, right? Who did it? Was it Vivian or was it someone else? And you must keep an open mind on this, sort of, as it's quite all right to say, oh, yeah, well, this has happened and that's happened, yeah. Well, she's she's dead, she's done it or he's done it or whatever it might be. As soon as you start to think along those lines, then you can get what we call tunnel vision, you know. You can only see one way. Then when something breaks where it could indicate someone else or something else, you then have made maybe could well have closed up some of those avenues which would have put along a different line or a different train of thought or a different line of investigation. So you must always keep an open mind on the type, on a lot of these things, right up to the point where there is no doubt in my mind as to what the situation is. Because if you have tunnel vision, it is pretty dangerous because you can go down a down a whole lot of tangents and be totally wrong and then cloud your judgment and tend to, you know, it, the whole investigation. I'm not saying at any stage that this, you know, as to who killed her, I have my own ideas. Fergus was still staying at Marnie and Ian's place when Alan McFadden conducted the official police interview with him on Thursday the 25th of September. Two days had passed since the discovery of Beth Barnard's body. McFadden only expected to be there for a couple of hours, but it turned out that he was there all day. When he arrived, Fergus was in bed, much like Peter McHenry had described when he brought Dr Paul Flood to the house two days earlier. 
The language of any statement seems more formal than the way someone might speak. Here, Alan McFadden explains the process. Well, yes, that's what... I write down these things and say, well, is, is it true that you're a farmer and reside at such and such? And he says, yes. I mean, you, you can't really put yes in a statement. I mean, because, well, if he says yes, if he says yes, well, that's right. But at the end of it, what I do, I get him to read it out and then say, well, are you happy with that? And he says, yes, I'm happy with that. Prepared to sign it? Yes, no. And put the duration at the bottom of it. But it's a long process of, of being there for a... Uh, for, uh, say, well, all day it took now to get a statement from a statement that was going to probably take a couple of hours that run into, at this stage, you know, an eight, ten-hour statement. I think from memory it went for over 25 pages of handwriting. While Fergus Cameron was being interviewed by Detective Alan McFadden, his sister Marnie and brother-in-law Ian Cairns were interviewed separately in other parts of the house. They both repeated their stories about the fight on Monday night, minding Vivian and Fergus's two boys, and then the events of Tuesday morning. Their statements were much shorter than Fergus's statement. That meant that once Marnie was done speaking to her detective, she devoted herself to supplying Detective Ellen McFadden and her brother Fergus with tea and sandwiches. McFadden welcomed each break, because it gave his aching writing hand a rest. At the same time, Pam Cameron was giving a statement to another detective, presumably at her house down the road. She finished her statement by saying, Beth formed a close friendship with Fergus, but there was no overt signs of any sexual relationship, and I was totally unaware of any serious affair going on between them. Over the 11 years that I've known Vivian... Whilst she has been married to Fergus, I am aware of problems existing with their marriage, which has resulted in arguments in front of family members. Although recently their relationship did appear to be better. In response to an obvious question about Vivian's smoking habits because of Vivian's brand of Claridge cigarettes being found at Beth's house, Pam Cameron concluded her statement by saying, Vivian was also a heavy smoker and rarely went anywhere without her cigarettes. It was almost 10pm when Fergus signed his statement, over 12 hours after McFadden had started interviewing him. McFadden took the stack of handwritten pages with him. He would type them up the next day, and Fergus would sign the typed copy later. At this stage, it wasn't McFadden's job to question Fergus, merely to take his statement. The questioning would come later. On Friday the 26th of September, the search for Vivian Cameron continued. Locals were spoken to, and the search and rescue team continued with the task of searching under the bridge. It was Friday when the police took Glenda Frost's statement. When Glenda Frost's friend Pam first saw on the news that the police were looking for Vivian Cameron, and that her car had been found near the bridge, Pam rang Glenda straight away. As we heard in episode 5, Glenda was so upset that Pam arranged to take a day off work and headed straight back to the island to help her friend make the right decision, to call the police. And I went 
I was nursing at the time and I rang the matron at the hospital where I was working and I didn't tell her about the whole thing, but I said, would she permit me to take a day off because Glenda was really, at this stage, quite upset about what had happened. And I took off and went back down to the island and um, we talked a little bit more about it together to make our decision as to whether we would give the information. But I felt that it was necessary because it was a misleading statement that they had given that they felt that Vivian at that stage was dead when she had in fact rung Glenda quite a number of hours later and was acting as if nothing had happened. Glenda was very glad for the support. Initially, she didn't want to ring, but Pam said something to her that would make her change her mind. My first instinct was self-preservation. I said, oh, no, I'm not going to ring. Um, and I know what detectives can be like too. You know, you sort of, you end up feeling like you're the guilty party. She Around rang the, the detective for me because I was crying. I, she said to me, you've got to ring the detectives. And I said, no, I'm frightened, you know. And she said, well, Viv could be in strife. You've got to help her. And that was the clincher. If Viv was in strife, then now was the time she would need a friend to speak up. Homicide detective Rory O'Connor visited Glenda on Friday the 26th of September to take her statement. She was still nervous and upset, but had calmed down enough to tell her story. When the detectives were questioning me, Rory or one of them said to me, do you mean to say we've been, we were diving looking for her and you were supposedly talking to her on the phone? And we said not supposedly, we were. Of course Rory O'Connor had to interrogate Glenda and Pam's story. The Land Cruiser had been found near the bridge. A delivery driver had come forward to say that he'd seen a vehicle near the bridge around 5am. The times fit. Phone call from Vivian to the Dixons at 3am, Margaret McPhee hearing a vehicle at 3.20am, car seen at 5am where the Land Cruiser was later found. Glenda's account of receiving a phone call from Vivian five hours later at 10am was a bit of a fly in the ointment. Not only was Glenda questioned by the homicide detectives, but in the following days, Sergeant Cliff Ash, the local cop who'd first taken the report from Donald and Ian, questioned her too. The homicide detectives used Cliff Ash for his local knowledge. That's right. Well, he works for us once we went down there. And uh, I think he got him to do a lot of the local running around for us so that he could... Uh, because he knew the people. Yeah. He knew the Camerons. And we used him as a uh, pretty good liaison officer because if we needed something or if we wanted to check something, he knew somebody somewhere, that, you know, without us having to go through where from the homicide squad, blah, blah, blah. You know, he could do it for us. Uh, at least tell us who to see directly. And that's how and, uh, he was quite, you know... Cliff Ash tried to challenge her story and suggested that Glenda received the phone call from Vivian on the Monday, not the Tuesday. Lots of Islanders had taken the early show day holiday. Maybe Glenda was mistaken. Who works on a Monday? I said, I do, Cliff, and I said, you can ask people around. I went to work while the whole island was dead on the Monday because he was trying to insinuate but she had rung me the day before. I said, no, Cliff. I said, Pam wasn't even down in the morning at 10. She didn't come up down until the afternoon. 
And so while the police looked into the phone call from Vivian to Glenda Frost, they couldn't prove it one way or another. Over time, it became less important in the investigation and it would be ignored altogether when the coroner eventually made his finding at the inquest, but that wouldn't be for another year. On Saturday the 27th of September, Wayne Hunt, the delivery driver, gave his statement to homicide detective Gary Hunter. Given that so much weight was put on his statement later at the inquest, it is surprisingly vague. Wayne Hunt made it clear that he took little notice of whatever type of vehicle it was that had been parked near the bridge that morning. He said in his police statement, I cannot say what type of car it was or the colour. All I can say is that there was a car parked there. I just glanced and kept going, but thought it was strange for it to be parked there at that time because normally there's nothing there. I thought it must have been someone using the toilet and didn't think anything more about it. There's always been a question over when the Land Cruiser was left in Forest Avenue in full view of those coming across the bridge. While Pam Cameron found it at 4pm on her way home from work, she hadn't noticed it at lunchtime when she went shopping for pottery. At that stage, she hadn't heard it was missing, so she wouldn't have been looking out for it. However, she said in her statement, Earlier in the lunch hour, prior to me hearing the news from my colleague, I had driven to the pottery shop in New Haven and on my return to San Remo, I had noticed a police car parked by the bus stop near the bridge. Because of seeing the police car earlier and it being in close vicinity to where I found the Land Cruiser, I assumed because of what Donald had told me that Vivian had been located by the police and that the Land Cruiser had been left unattended. When Robin Dixon's husband John gave his statement to the police about taking the phone call from Vivian at 3am, he also mentioned that he had seen what looked like the Cameron's Land Cruiser parked at Forest Avenue about 3pm on Tuesday afternoon, an hour before Pam Cameron found it. While it's a stretch to think of all the police driving past the Land Cruiser all day, is it an even bigger stretch to think that local cops looking for Vivian and the Land Cruiser could have been parked right near it and not noticed it? I don't know the answer to that one, but if it wasn't there earlier, then who put it there later and why? As well as speaking to Wayne Hunt on Saturday the 27th of September, detectives also met Isabel Adicote at the community house. Vivian had made a note in the community house diary to ring Glenda on the Tuesday. Isabel thought the diary entry was important. My daughter was in the police force at that stage. So I rang her up and I said, I don't know what to do. There's something a bit funny about the diary. So she said, ring the police, Mum. So I rang. And they said, oh, look, we will probably come and interview you, which they did the following Saturday. And they took me into the community house. They went through everything in the community house and they took away the diary. So that was rather terrifying. I had never been involved so much in a thing like this. There's always been a persistent rumour that Vivian Cameron 
might have stayed the night in the community house. Is it possible that things all became too much for Vivian, with the fight, the crumbling of her marriage, her husband's declaration of love for another woman, that Vivian just needed to get away from her house? If she did indeed make the 10am phone call to Glenda Frost on Tuesday, then she was still alive and had to be somewhere. I put this possibility to Isabel. The diary was in days right. and it was in Tuesday. So Tuesday the 23rd. Tuesday the 23rd. I, I don't know where that diary is now. There, there was always the suggestion that Vivian had gone to the community house that night when she rang uh, Robin Dixon in the middle of the night that she had actually stayed at the community house and if she did, if she did sleep on the couch at the community house, she had a key. And is it possible that she got up in the morning and made that note ring Glenda and that's where she rang Glenda from? Well, I think that is entirely possible because when the police took me in on the Saturday morning, we had a cupboard that was behind the desk and in that cupboard was a folded pink blanket Now, the police took that blanket out and shook it and refolded it and I crossed my mind, were they looking for a knife? That's crossed my mind there. But when I think about it, you know, in retrospect, Vivian probably folded it all up after she'd been asleep. I, I believe that Vivian was alive on Tuesday morning, but it's just too hard to comprehend what happened. When we experience trauma, we want to talk about it because in the talking about it, we process it. We figure out what it means and how we move forward. But in this case, right from the moment, Donald Cameron and Ian Cairns stood at the gate of Beth's farm talking to Peter McHenry about anything else but the woman lying dead inside there was a reluctance on the part of the family to talk about the events of the 23rd of September at all. Beth was dead, Vivian was missing, two little boys had lost their mother. The ripple effect was huge, but apparently not a topic for discussion. Anne Davy, a friend of the Camerons, went to visit them in the days after the murder. Now, you went to the Cameron house in the days after offering comfort. What was your reading on um, how they were feeling at the time? Everyone just, it was eerie. It it was so unnatural. I mean, we were all reeling from the savagery of of the event. It was weird. It was most unnatural. It's hard to describe, but it wasn't a pleasant situation whatsoever. Was it something that when you, um, like, did you take a casserole or a cake or anything to the family? That's right. I took something for um, to, for afternoon tea and we didn't see Fergus. I, he was apparently in bed. So we just spoke to some of the other members of the family and left. And was it a topic that you broached? It was a non-topic. It yeah. wasn't mentioned. No, yeah. no, it wasn't discussed. One can imagine that if if you experience any kind of trauma or any kind of death in the family, that if people came around with cake, that that's all you would talk about. 
and that that is the topic, not a no a non-topic. Yeah, I suppose it was so, still so painful and still so hard to imagine that it something like this had happened into our community that just the conversation was too too sensitive. It it wasn't mentioned at all. Just because Vivian Cameron had vanished, that didn't mean the police didn't investigate the murder with the possibility that someone else could have been responsible. This became an important line of questioning when the swabs taken at the post-mortem examination showed the presence of spermatosa on both the internal and external vaginal swabs. While Fergus Cameron had admitted to having sexual intercourse with Beth on the Sunday night, he said on the Monday night they had just kissed and cuddled. If Beth had showered before she went out to visit Marie on Monday the 22nd of September, that probably would have removed external traces of Sunday night's intercourse. It raised the question if Beth was growing tired of the relationship with Fergus not going anywhere, and at the same time had the attention of several local available single men, could she have formed another relationship? It was a possibility the police had to consider. When I put the question to Rory O'Connor all those years ago about the external swab proving positive for spermatosa, I didn't know about Beth spending the day with Marie. Now, she might have just spent the day in bed. Now, she could have it on her, couldn't she? Yeah. I think, you know, at the time we thought, oh, you know, you can't say, you can't do anything. You put it to Fergus, no, not me. You talk to the boyfriends, those that we knew of, those that we could find out. You know, there was no one, nothing to suggest that, you know, so what else can you presume? You know, that it possibly could be from the Sunday night, you know. Was it Fergus? It wasn't enough to tell. No tales went on it. You know, you're left with a lot of these, you know. Could be, could be. Police spoke to a number of young men who were fond of Beth, who worked with her at the Penguin Parade. On the 25th of September, a death notice appeared in the Sun newspaper. Barnard, Beth. My life has been enriched by your love and kindness, which you shared with everyone. Friendships like ours come once in a lifetime. Thank you for being part of mine. The memories we have will keep us strong until we meet again. You will always have a place in my heart. Michael L. On Monday the 29th of September, it was Detective Ellen McFadden's job to go and speak to Michael L. Michael had been very fond of Beth. He told McFadden that he'd first met Beth at the Penguin Parade about a year earlier when he'd started working there. Michael explained how their friendship had begun. He said, About two weeks after I started work at the Penguin Parade, I formed a friendship with Beth, and over the last six months, we would be together almost every weekend, as well as seeing each other almost every weekday working at the Penguin Parade. Michael was fond of Beth, and ironically, he offered to help with landmarking at Fergus Cameron's farm so he could spend more time with her. He told McFadden, I would have been there helping for about six days and the main reason I was there was to be with Beth, as well as liking the work. He added, Since knowing Beth, I have been to her place in McPhee's Road in Rill 
many times and I believed we developed a very special relationship. When McFadden asked Michael to elaborate about the relationship, Michael seemed compelled to be specific. When I say we developed a special relationship, we never went to bed together or had sexual intercourse, and I didn't press this point as she said she didn't want to have sex until she was married, and she was so definite about this. McFadden asked Michael what he knew about Beth's relationship with Fergus Cameron. Michael replied, About a month ago, Beth and I were in my car when she said to me that she wanted to tell me something. She said there was a little bit more between her and Fergus Cameron than just being good friends and she wanted me to know because I was so honest and she was feeling dishonest in not letting me know. This matter wasn't discussed again until last Friday night when we were at the Isle of Wight Hotel in Cowes. We were just standing talking and she said she wanted to have a talk and told me that she was still worried about her relationship with Fergus and me knowing about it. And she told me that she decided to take three weeks off work from the Penguin Parade and the Cameron Farm. According to Michael, Beth brought up the same matter again on the following night when they, along with Beth's friend Marie, went out for dinner to a local hotel. Beth asked him if he thought any more about her revelation about Fergus. Michael told Beth he hadn't. He said, I didn't say anything else as I knew it was pointless about what was happening between her and Fergus and she was sick anyway and I didn't want to take the matter any further. When McFadden pursued the question of Beth's relationship with Fergus, Michael shared his thoughts about the affair. Although she never said, I assumed that the relationship between Beth and Fergus Cameron was not one of a sexual nature because of what she told me of her beliefs of sex before marriage, strongly disapproving. Michael may have chosen to ignore the signs, but McFadden knew differently, having interviewed Fergus Cameron the previous Thursday. Fergus had freely admitted the sexual nature of his relationship with Beth. Michael told McFadden about the last time he'd seen Beth alive. Last Sunday morning at about 11am on the 21st of September 1986 was the last time I saw Beth alive. She came into my sports shop in Cowes and appeared to be in good spirits and said she was looking forward to Tuesday night as we were going out somewhere in Melbourne to a band. Beth was in the shop for about 15 to 20 minutes and left. It occurred to McFadden that Beth must have gone straight to Michael's store after seeing Dr Paul Flood at 10.30am on the Sunday. Michael told McFadden that he had spoken to Beth that Sunday afternoon and he'd said to her that the break from work would be good for her. And that was the last contact I had with her. It is unclear from the files I was able to collect whether or not the police spoke to the man who Beth was angry about for mowing her lawns and left her flowers. The investigation continued and detectives spoke to as many people as they could. With each lead and each new piece of evidence, the police went back to Fergus Cameron. From where they stood, detectives noticed a growing impatience with their visits. I was surprised about this, when Rory O'Connor told me back when I first interviewed him. I think it was just sick to death of us, uh, 
at the end of the inquiry, I think you'll find that he's... Uh, Probably be sick to death of him. Well, I suppose he had it in his mind that uh, Beth's dead, Vivian's jumped, it's all over, you know. I mean, uh, let's get the coppers out of this and just get on with it as soon as possible. Every time he called at the house, the children would run and hide from us. Whether it was anything that was said to them or not, I don't know, but I think someone must have said that we were looking for their mother and we were going to lock her up or something like that because the kids were petrified of us every time we called the house. You know, they couldn't talk to us or anything. The animals being said, of course. How the other family members, what the other family members have said, because they're all living in a little community there. When I caught up with Rory O'Connor recently, he could still recall how the Cameron children ran from him. I had wondered over the years if police spoke to the children. Had they slept through the fight of the night of the murder? Did they remember the Dixons collecting them? So were they spoken to? No, far too young. Ran ran from us as soon as they saw us. And, you know, and given the circumstances uh, and given what they probably heard about and and mum wasn't there or anything like that, we didn't blame them. And we're not about to interrogate kids. Real homicide investigations are not like TV. They do not move quickly, and all the loose ends are not tied up. It would take a number of weeks before the evidence items were handed over to scientist Dr Bentley Atchison at the State Forensic Science Laboratory. On the 16th of October, 23 days after the murder, Dr Bentley Atchison took delivery of two bags of crime scene items to begin his scientific analysis of the evidence from Beth's house, the Cameron house, and the Land Cruiser. The following day, the 17th of October, 1986, just 24 days after Beth's body was found and Vivian Cameron vanished, a memorial was held for Vivian. It was invitation only and took place on the Cameron farm, While it might have been intended to bring closure to her family and children, many felt that it was too soon for such a ceremony, especially when a lot of Vivian's friends still half expected her to turn up. Family friend Anne Davey couldn't attend the memorial. People had mixed feelings about it because I think we we were still, well, obviously still in shock, but still wanting to think that Vivian could be found, that she might still be somewhere. And so, actually, I couldn't go that day, but I know some people found it just too hard and, and, and didn't attend. Uh, it was, as I say, at the time, we were, we were still in shock, and I think it was quite a few weeks afterwards. Co-worker from the community house, Isabel Adicote, did attend the invitation-only memorial. It was very odd we were invited you only could go if you were invited and we were checked at the gate of the farm when we arrived i went along with mari who is now 98 years old and in care but mari has still got quite a lot of uh, her marbles still and uh, she has always been terribly upset about this because she could not believe that Vivian could do such a terrible thing. And the children were there uh, and they put, they, they planted a rose in the garden in memory of Vivian. And we sat there 
and looked out towards the sea. The house was behind us. And then we had um, scones, jam and cream served us. But it was sort of, it was strange because we were all, everyone who was invited was obviously had something to do with Vivian. There was no mention of Beth. It was for Vivian. But it was strange because this lady arrived and it was very creepy. It was happened to be Vivian's sister. And she looked just like Vivian and she wore a big black hat. I remember that. And it was strange. It was very strange. But just because Vivian Cameron had vanished, detectives from the Homicide Squad didn't just focus on her. Given the brutality of the attack on Beth in her bedroom, if you took Vivian out of the equation, what would that kind of attack look like to investigators? During my original research, I asked Rory O'Connor whether the appearance and damage to Beth looked like a sexually motivated or rape murder. But a sexual murder can... Yeah, oh, well, I mean, all aspects look at it. It wasn't as if, you know, just because Vivian was missing in the circumstances, etc., is a pretty good presumption. But it wasn't a closed book. We looked at every aspect of it. We looked at every, people who had come on the island, we went through running sheets to make sure that there was no houses broken into around the area, you know. I mean, you can only, you can only search with what you've got. Now, because of the, the setup on the island, most of the inquiries were confined to the island and uh, just off the island in uh, San Remo. But, uh, yeah, all those aspects were looked at. You know, I mean, uh, I suppose an indicator is that she still had her pants on, not that they couldn't have been pulled down and pulled up again, etc. But you, you'll notice that uh, if pants are on for any length of time, they tend to fit snugly or they snuggle into a body. Uh, as the body relaxes, and, that's, and there was no indication that those pants had been pulled down and then that's pulled up again, or anything like that, you know what I mean? You know? But that, uh, you just think yourself, you know, after you've been wearing your knickers for a day, they kind of fit it into the grooves of your body. Yeah. Whereas if they're pulled down and then pulled up again, they kind of form new lines. Now, if she's killed straight away and that's happened, those lines won't form because your body, because your muscles won't, uh, there's no control on your muscles. It's your muscles that do that. And, uh, that's how they know, that's how you can tell whether, you know, someone's been dressed or not after they've been murdered or something like that. You know, there's ways of looking at it, you know, and, and uh, the actions of the muscles and the actions of the body after death is different to uh, what it was like before death. I mean, if you punch someone in the face after they're dead, there's not going to be a bruise come, is there? Because even though you're going to break, still break blood vessels enough, there's no blood flowing through to cause them, you know, to bruise up. You get just what they call lividity, where all the blood just drains to... While some people have been critical of the police investigation over the years because there wasn't a conclusion set in stone and Vivian Cameron was never located, it's important to understand that the police went to great lengths to explore every avenue. It just didn't help. on the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. It followed then that the blood on the floor of the spare room and on the bed would be his O-type blood, but it wasn't. We know that Vivian was there. 
and she had a, a pretty good motive to do what she did. On the balance of evidence, men who didn't know Glenda Frost and didn't know Vivian Cameron would decide that that phone call never happened. <laughs> 